Good morning. It's good to be with you again today. I think it rains every time I come. Don't worry, I hear thunder and lightning. If the lights go out, I'm used to speaking around campfires at camp, so we'll just get a little fire going right down here. We'll all come in close, and uh, we can even operate if our electricity goes off. It's going uh, to be good. Um, we're going to read from uh, Mark 5 today, Mark 21. <clears throat> it's great that we read the Old Testament um, part that uh, was read earlier. It gives us this picture of who God is our sovereign God that we just sang about, our sovereign God that has control over death, has the ability to make extra oil happen, extra food happen, has the ability to take care of all of our needs at all times. Jesus, at this point, is in, uh, as we go through Mark, Jesus is creating a lot of following. Crowds are starting to see him. He's teaching in some authority sort of ways that folks are like, wow, he really knows what he's talking about. I haven't heard people speak like this before. He's healing people. And at this point where we get to this place in the passage, he's just finishing what I'd like to call his sovereign tour around the Sea of Galilee. I think he probably had a t-shirt with different things on the back like, just calm the sea by saying, be calm, uh, sent a, a legion of demons out of a man by telling them to go into pigs. So he had his, his t-shirt, I think he probably has his t-shirt of his little tour that he's doing, but it's the sovereign tour around the Sea of Galilee, and he's just done some of these different things, and he's just got back over on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, back to sort of more of his hometown in a Jewish community here. And uh, that's where our story starts today. So let me read for us once I find these things. All right, let's read from Mark 5, 21. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold... One of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, and she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself the power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? (laughs) But his disciples said to him, "You, You see the multitude thronging around you, and you say, Who touched me? And we looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. 
And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house, the ruler of the synagogue, and saw a tumult and those who wept and, and, and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, however you pronounce that, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl rose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. The word of the Lord. So early in my camp years, uh, I was on adventure staff, and we uh, often used a story of a famous tightrope walker as a way to teach kids about faith and trust. Found out later that it was a story that was used a ton, but uh, I'm just going to remind us of that, even if you've heard it before. It's a guy named Charles Blondin, and Charles Blondin was a famous tightrope walker, was the first person to walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls. He was famous all around the world. He had an agent that was almost as well-renowned as he was. His agent was one of those guys that was able to bring tons and tons of people. They say that maybe there were 25,000 people at the first showing of walking across the uh, Niagara Falls. And it sounds like as you read the legends, some are legends, some are true. It's hard to figure out what, which parts are, are true and which parts are just made up. But it sounds like that he probably crossed Niagara Falls in his whole career about 300 times, doing different things each time to try to bolster the experience and to get more and more people to come out and see what he was doing. Um, his first time that he walked across the first time he walked across, he's walking across, and everybody is nervous because no one has done this before. He goes across, and he stops in the middle. This first time he's doing, he stops in the middle, about 25,000 people, and everybody's nervous. They think, what's going to happen? He sets down his long pole that he uses for balance. He takes a string out of his pocket. He lowers the string down. The maid of the mist is going underneath. They put a bottle of wine on the bottom of the string, he pulls it up, he takes a drink, and he lowers it back down, picks up his, his, uh, his uh, pole, walks back across. Everybody's cheering. Oh, my goodness, this is unbelievable. After a 20-minute break, he grabs a backpack. He walks halfway across. Out of the backpack, he pulls a tripod with a camera, and the legend goes that he turns around and takes a picture of the thousands of people 
that are on the side, packs back up his camera and everything, walks back across. One time when he was walking across, this wasn't the first time he did it, but one of his later times, he had this big, huge backpack on, and as he's going across, he, he comes to the middle, and he opens up his backpack. Everybody's looking in amazement. What is he doing? I'm not sure what's happening. He pulls out a little wood stove, balances the wood stove, pulls out some wood, starts a, pot, a, a fire, pulls out a frying pan, and makes himself an omelet in the middle of the wire across the Niagara Falls. Finishes eating, dumps out the hot coals, puts it back in his backpack, and walks the rest of the way across. Unbelievable, crazy sort of things. And again, each time his agent makes these big spectacles about, come see what he's going to do this time. It's this crazy sort of thing that he's doing. One of the stories goes that he's walking across backwards with the wheelbarrow, forwards with the wheelbarrow. He gets the other side, walks back across backwards with the wheelbarrow. And as he gets back on the other side, he asks his agent, and his agent is on the other side. He asks his agent, tell us the people if they think I can take this wheelbarrow all the way across safely with a person in the wheelbarrow. And so he's like, hey, everybody, who thinks that the great Charles Blondin can take someone in the wheelbarrow safely across the wire, or do you think they'll fall to his death? I'm just making that up, but you know, you can see how he's building this sort of thing up. So he's building this whole sort of thing up, and the crowd's like, yeah, he can do it. He goes, and then the the agent goes, is there anyone that would like to ride in the wheelbarrow? And all of them, no, no, no. So Blondin supposedly looks at his agent and says, do you believe I can do it? And the agent's like, of course I believe you can do it. And so he looks at the agent and he says, if you believe I can do it, get in the wheelbarrow. The legend goes that the agent never got in the wheelbarrow. Never got in the wheelbarrow. So here's what my premise is on this passage that we're reading, is that faith is not just belief, but faith is a mixture of bravery and belief. That true faith is a mixture of bravery and belief. So let me tell you, as we're, as we're going to this story that we just read, I'm going to tell you about these two characters that are in this scripture, true characters, not made-up characters. Sometimes we think Bible story characters seem like they're made up, but these are real people that really did come in contact with Jesus and really did experience the sovereign power of the great Savior. So here's what happens is Jer Jairus is ruler of the synagogue. He's probably a pretty wealthy man. There's a chance he was a Pharisee or a Sadducee. There's a chance because the ruler of the synagogue may have been that, but he doesn't, Jesus doesn't tell us that. Mark doesn't tell us that uh, in the scripture here. And so we, we know that he is at least friends with Pharisees, and he is the ruler of the synagogue, which means he has a pretty good job. His job is to make sure everything is clean. His job is to make sure the right bread is out, the right candles are lit. He is the person that is making sure that the synagogue is ready for all the things that need to happen in worship and in forgiveness and all the different things that the synagogue was representing at those times. 
We know that he was pretty wealthy for a couple reasons. One, he has a house that has more than one room, so we know that he has somewhat of a significant house that he lives in. We also know that, uh, that uh, he uh, has servants because his servants come running to him to let him know that his daughter has died. The other really key part about knowing that he's wealthy is that he has a huge amount of professional weepers and mourners at his house after his daughter has died. Now, it was Jewish law that everyone who had someone die had to have at least one professional mourner and two flute players. So I don't know, are any of you guys flute players? Do we have any flute players in here? Could have been a pretty good gig, right? You, you always have to have two so that there was always had to be a, a group of flute players. But that was Jewish law that when someone died in your house, you had to have the flute players and at least one professional whaler come and they would come to make sure that the whole community knew that there was a broken-hearted family as they were ushering off their loved one into the next world. So Jairus comes up, and he's risking something here because we know at this point in the Scriptures, we know that the Pharisees are not super fond of Jesus, that they're trying to trap him, they're trying to figure him out, and they're worried that Jesus is going to change their way of life, change and challenge their way of believing what God had called them to do. And so they've been already starting to figure out ways to trap him and to arrest him and to do different things. And Jairus, knowing that, 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 that he could be shunned for thinking that Jesus maybe really was the Son of God, doesn't care because his 12-year-old daughter is incredibly sick. And so he comes to Jesus, and actually it says bow down, and the word there also almost means worship. He bows down before Jesus, acknowledging that he is probably the Son of God. And so, and he says, Lord, if you just have time, could you come? Could you come and just lay your hand on my daughter so that she could be healed? Which we now know that Jairus then believes in the healing power of Jesus, the ability to do that. He believes wholeheartedly, and it's taken him some bravery and courage to come in front of this huge crowd of people and to fall before Jesus. Now, again, this huge crowd is here. We also can, because Jairus is wealthy and probably well-to-do in the community, people actually let him get to Jesus. It would have been hard to get to Jesus. And, uh, and as he bows down, Jesus gets to have a conversation, and Jesus says, okay, let's go to your house. So they start going to the house, but the crowds keep bugging around them. And you can just kind of, I think about uh, the, the, uh, the, um, the uh, movie, um, I'm forgetting the name of the movie, Inconceivable. What's the name of the movie, Inconceivable? Princess Bride, thank you. How could I forget Princess Bride? How many people have seen Princess Bride? Yeah, remember when the giant goes, move! And then they're like, oh, okay, now we can walk through. That's what I kind of picture is Jairus and his servants are probably like, move, let's go, we got to get through here, we got to get through here. So he's trying to get them to get going, but the crowds are 
all around him and he's kind of going slow. And all of a sudden then, in the midst of trying to hurry up to get to this man's house, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And his disciples are like, what are you talking about? Do you see how many people around you? Everybody's bumping into you. What do you mean, who touched me? Jesus, I felt power leave from me. Someone touched me, and he turns, and he sees this woman. Let's talk about this woman. This woman, for 12 years, the year that this girl was born, that was dying, for 12 years had a flow of blood that was uncontrollable. If you know anything about your Levitical law in the Old Testament, we know that she would have been considered an outcast. With this type of illness, she would not have been allowed to go to the synagogue. She wouldn't have been allowed to worship God. She would not have been allowed to stay in her family's home. She would have had to live on the outside of the village, and she was never allowed to touch anyone. If she touched a person, they would be considered unclean. Wow. So this person, this woman, lives on the outside of town, has a terrible sickness that's going on, and she has spent all of her money to different doctors trying to figure out how to get herself healed, how to get back to a place where she can be hugged again, be loved again, talk to her family again. We know now at this point, not only did it not work, it made it worse. Not only did it make it worse, but she spent all of her money, so now she's poor, has nothing is in worse pain than she's ever been, has been dealing with this for 12 years, has no physical contact, is not able to join with her body of believers to worship, the, worship God. She is a complete outcast. And I'll tell you, I have no doubt that there's points in her life where she thought, I just wish this life would end. I just wish I, just wish I wouldn't have to go on like this anymore. So here's what happens. She hears the news of one that has the power to heal, has the power in our lowest moments to bring us life. And so get this, this woman that's not allowed to touch anyone, this woman that is a complete outcast, this woman that has probably not been touched for 12 years, probably puts on a disguise. She thinks, this is my last option. But listen, if that woman was seen in this crowd, she would have been stoned and thrown out. So she disguises herself all up, and she thinks this is worth it. This, this one, this sovereign one that's been doing all these great things has the power to make me whole, has the power to take me from being uncleaned to being clean again. And so I picture this picture of her in a disguise, trying not to touch people as she sneaks through the crowd. But obviously she is touching people and she knows that she's breaking laws to get to Jesus. 
And so she sneaks around and everything, and I picture her just kind of getting down low and just reaching down and just touching his garment. And it says, immediately, her affliction was gone. Can you imagine the bravery that it took for this woman to get to Jesus? Then this is amazing. Jesus looks and sees her. And he doesn't just say, what did you touch me for? Or, I'm glad you're healed now. He listens to her story. He sits and listens to her story. Now, Jairus, you can picture him right now, right? Uh, Jesus, this woman is a poor outcast. I'm the ruler of the synagogue and my daughter's about to die. What are you doing stopping? But it says that she shared her whole story. So here's this woman that sits at the foot of Jesus, explains the whole story. It says that she falls in front of him in fear. Because again, remember, she just made Jesus unclean. She touched him when she's not allowed to. So she falls before him in fear because he could very easily say, this unclean woman touched me. Get rid of her. It was the law. But instead, he sits and he listens to her story. And then get this, he says, daughter, personal name to this woman, daughter. You belong to me now, daughter. You're mine. He says, daughter, your faith has made you clean, made you well. And then he does this, go in peace. Your afflictions will be no more. Wow. Daughter, go in peace. Jesus, can you just imagine her just leaping for joy as she gets back, just thinking about, I'm going to be able to be hugged and loved, but now, not only do I have peace with my affliction that's in me, I will be able to have peace with my family again, and I have peace with the great sovereign Jesus Almighty. So the servants come up. Jesus, don't worry about rushing in anymore. Jairus' daughter is dead. And uh, you can just imagine the frustration that Jairus is feeling at this point, stopping to talk to this worthless woman, not going to his daughter. You can just feel his emotion, his, oh my goodness, my last chance for my daughter was Jesus, and now it's too late. And Jesus says something pretty amazing. Do not be afraid, only believe. Be brave and believe. Don't be afraid. I am the Almighty. So I don't know how he does this, but he doesn't permit this great crowd to follow him. I have no idea how he does this. The crowd doesn't follow him. He just takes his three, uh, his three uh, top guys, and he heads over there. He goes into the place. The whalers, the flute players, everybody's there. They're professionals. They know what's happening. And Jesus says, the child is not dead. She's only sleeping. The professional 
death people, the professional ones that go to all the death stuff, they, they know what dead people are. They get paid to be there. They're, they laughed at him. What are you talking about, Jesus? She's dead. We know what dead is. We're here. We're wailing. We're mourning. We're playing the flutes. We're doing everything we're supposed to be doing. Trust me, she's dead. So Jesus kicks them all out of the house and takes the mom and dad and goes into the house. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately, the girl rose and walked for she was 12 years old. And then I love the part that Jesus does here, right? Jesus goes, she's hungry. Go get her something to eat. I love that Jesus cares about us eating. Isn't that great? It's so good because I love eating and uh, this is a good thing. And it makes sense then later, very soon, he, he takes a couple fish and some loaves and makes, makes everybody eat. But uh, definitely a guy that's concerned about eating, which is, uh, which is awesome. So let's... Uh, Let's go back to this picture of Charles Blondin. This is what Jesus is asking us to do in faith. He's not asking us to be like the agent. And I got to be honest with you. I'm a lot more like the agent than I am about like like these two folks here, especially not the woman. I I like to stand and, and proclaim who Jesus is. Um, and and to, to tell folks that I believe wholeheartedly in him, I believe he's sovereign, I believe that he is uh, the one that's in control of all things, I believe 100% that he could tell this storm outside to be still and it would be still. I, I believe, and if you ask me, I can tell you that all day long, what I believe about Jesus. But the problem is, is that sometimes Jesus says, get in the wheelbarrow, and that's where I struggle. I struggle with the bravery part of my belief. My faith is often full of belief, but sure does lack bravery. I like to do, it's great, because I'm a camp director that proclaims the gospel to kids, but I've got this really comfortable, neat structure that I get to do in the safe place of Ligonier Camping Conference Center. And I'm not saying that the Lord hasn't called me there and he doesn't do mighty things in kids' lives there and the gospel doesn't go out and that we don't do a great job of training counselors to proclaim the gospel. But I got to tell you, Ligonier Camp's a pretty safe place to proclaim the gospel. I can share the things I can believe, but the question becomes... What does it look like to combine bravery and belief in our faith? And I think as we look at the church in America to today, we're really good about talking about belief, but we're not real good about being brave. So for some of you, let me just tell you this. First off, if there's anybody in this room today that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, the first part of combining bravery and belief is that first step that we take in making Jesus the Lord. Uh, Romans 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here's a picture that we have that Jesus has the power over the unclean to make them clean and has the power to bring life to the dead. So we read all scripture, we know that if we are not in Christ, we are dead in our sins. And if we look at our lives and the sins that we've committed, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we know that we are unclean. 
I think it's awesome here in this story that Jesus gives us a picture of his power to heal the unclean and to rise the dead from the dead. So if you are here today and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, the first step in faith where there's belief and bravery is this. Believe, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's the bravery. You've got to confess, Lord, I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I've fallen short of your glory, and I want you to be in charge of my life. I am going to give up control of my life and give it to you. And then it says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, believe in your heart that God sent his son to live the life that we couldn't live, that he was fully man and fully God, and he obeyed God all the way to death on the cross. And for all of those that would follow him, their sins were thrown upon him, and he suffered the wrath of God, even hell itself, for our sake. And rose again from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God as the sovereign doer of God's will. So the first step is, if you don't know this Savior, the first step of faith is bravery and belief. For those of us that already know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, this is where it gets difficult. This is the part I don't like. It's easy for me to stand up and tell you, but it does not easy for me to do in my own life. And that's the part where we got to take the things that we say we believe and look for the opportunities that Jesus is telling us to step into the wheelbarrow, to trust that he can take us across. So for instance, let me ask you this. Is there someone in your community, in your neighborhood, that you know does not know the Lord? You've, you've built a friendship with them, and in your brain you think, I believe that, uh, that if I just live my life, in a way that is honoring to God, maybe they'll see the way I live and maybe someday they'll start to ask me questions. Or does bravery and belief look like this? Lord, I'm, I'm afraid. I, I don't know how to have this conversation with my neighbor that doesn't know the Lord, but I know he needs you. Lord, give me the confidence and the ability to step out of my comfort zone and get in the wheelbarrow and go tell this person about Jesus. For your young people on your sports teams, right? You guys are on different sports teams or in your bands or whatever it is. It's so easy to kind of just get caught up in going through your day. You come to church on Sunday but when the kids ask you those hard questions about, oh, you don't really believe that Jesus stuff, do you? That's where it gets hard. That's where bravery comes in, where you have to say, yes, I do believe. And not only that, but I am going to work harder in school and on my sports team and in the band than everybody else, not because... I want to be the best, but because I want to serve the one that created me and gave me the gifts. And so I want to be, excel in what I do, not for my sake, not for my parents' sake, but for the sake of the glory of the Lord. Now listen, in this passage, it's easy to get caught up in this idea to think, if I just have faith, bravery, and belief, and come to Jesus, then 
everything's going to be all right. Obviously, in this story, everything turns out great, right? It's a happy story ending. The 12-year-old is risen from the dead. The woman who bled for 12 years is healed. She gets to go in peace. So it's easy to think, as long as I'm brave and I believe, as long as I do these sort of things, everything is going to be perfect. It's going to be awesome. So here's my question to you. Is Jesus just as good and gracious and sovereign and powerful if Jairus came to Jesus and Jesus said, no, I, I'm not going to heal your, your daughter. Your daughter is dead. Or if the woman would have come up to Jesus, touched his cloak, and she, he said, listen, I admire your faith, but this affliction is going to stay with you. Does that change the love of our great God? Does that change the power of Jesus? The question is, bravery and belief is not dependent on Jesus' response. It's dependent on the trust that we put in Jesus. When we come to Jesus, the healing, the afflictions, all the things that we're going through don't necessarily go away, but Jesus always sends us away with peace. That's the part of this story that's most important here is that Jesus says, daughter, go in peace. When we come to Jesus with our bravery and our belief and we fall at the foot of Jesus and we say, Jesus, can you heal me from this cancer that I'm struggling with? Whether Jesus says yes or no, he says, go in peace. When we are at work and we're getting in this deep conversation about politics and we think, oh my goodness, our country's going to fall apart if this person is president or this person is president or this person, like we all, and we start to feel all the anxiety inside of us. Do we or don't we believe that the sovereign power of the one that sits at the right hand of the throne of God builds his kingdom no matter who's president of the United States? And so here's the thing. Here's what, here's what faith and belief looks like together. When we're having that argument with the person that doesn't believe the way that we believe, instead of us getting angry in our hearts and thinking, that person is ridiculous, I never want to talk to them again, what does it look like if we say, man, that was a great debate, I disagree with you politically, but you know, we can still love each other, and I still want to point you to Jesus, the one that sits at the right hand of the throne of God, that orchestrates all things, that can speak and the waters come calm, who can, through the power of his cloak, heal the sick, who can touch a dead person and they come to life, who can feed 5,000 with just a couple fish and some loaves. I think that 
what we need to start realizing is that when things are hard or when things are easy, that the sovereign God, Jesus, sits at the right hand of the throne of God and is orchestrating all things for our good and our purposes. For those of us that love the Lord, everything is part of his design and shape for us to become more and more like him. And even when we make poor decisions, we lack faith, we lack bravery, we lack belief. Jesus puts things in our lives for us to be shaped and molded into his likeness. The promise of the sanctification process in our lives is true. That all of us, if we are in Christ, are being made more and more like Christ each day. And again, I I heard R.C. Sproul once say it like this. It's like getting on an airplane. The airplane is ascending the whole time. Every once in a while, though, you hit an air pocket and it might drop just a little bit and then it picks back up. But the sovereignty of our God is that he, once he grabs a hold of us and pulls us into his, to become his sons and daughters like this woman, that become part of his families, that we get the inheritance that never fades, never perishes, never spoils, everything is ours that is his, He pulls us into that thing, and no matter how far we pull one way or the other, he claims us as his, we belong to him, and he will make us more and more like him every single day. And part of that is figuring out how to live your faith with bravery and belief. Hebron Church, I hope that this church is a church that doesn't just think about things inside of these walls, but thinks about life where the Lord is sending you, where he's asking you, listen, this job that you have right now, it pays good money, but it's not where I want you to be. Take a a risk and follow me where I want you to be. Or is he saying, hey, listen, I know right now in your marriage, I know that you're, uh, you're coming to church every Sunday, things are going all right, but you're really not making me center of your marriage It's time for you to have some deep conversations to work out what it means to have Jesus as the center. Or, or, hey, as a parent, my kids, there's so many things. I need them to be part of this. I need them to be part of this. I need them to go, oh, I got to have them go to church because that's important. But I also need them to make sure that they're at the soccer. Because, listen, if they're going to get into college, I need them to get these good grades and all that sort of stuff. Have you stopped for a second and said, Jesus, where do you want me to have my kids? What do you want me to be teaching them? How do you want me to be doing that? Because here's the thing, the culture is an unbelievable, powerful force in our lives that is pulling us in every direction. But listen to me clearly, the culture that we live in does not want you to serve and follow Jesus. The pull of our culture is trying to kill the family, kind to kill churches, trying to keep us from having Jesus be the center, and they don't even know that they're doing it. If we look on the news, we can see so many things that the culture calls good that is evil, and so many things that the culture calls evil that is good. The scriptures tell us that's going to happen. We've got to get serious about this faith thing that we're doing and believe that the one that has the power to heal and to raise from the dead, to make clean and to take us from our dead and sinness 
to alive in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Dear, Dear Lord, thank you again for this day that you've given us. Thank you for your great word. Lord, thank you that um, these stories of things that happened, Lord, that you didn't hide them from us, but you allowed us, not just even through word of mouth, but you allowed us in this unbelievable written book of your word to get a glimpse in who you are and your power and your sovereignty. So, Lord, we pray that you would change and mold our hearts. Lord, we know that you've promised us that once you've claimed us to be your sons and daughters, we know that you've promised us that you will continue to shape and mold us. But Lord, we pray that you would instill in our brains a deeper belief in who you are and what you've done for us on the cross and your power. And then, Lord, I pray that you would take our hearts and you would fill us with bravery and courage. And, Lord, that you would send us out to do your work. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to get in the wheelbarrow. Lord, that we would trust you so much that even when it looks hopeless, even when it seems impossible, even when we really, really don't want to do it, that we would trust you and allow you to take us where you want us to go. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.